1: We've been talking how drug prices in the United States should fall. That is what policymakers want. That is what customers want, not what pharmaceutical companies want. So are they falling? Here to talk about that is Michael Ray, founder and chief executive of Rx Saving Solutions based in Overland Park, Kansas. But he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So, Michael, something happened over Labor Day. Was it a price cut for <laughs> ph- pharmaceutical drugs or, or or something else?
2: Price cut's a negative. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, we've seen a, a flurry of activity even post-Pfizer, um, you know, when the president did, uh, did tweet about the price increases back in July. Uh, one of those companies was a, a, a company called Nostrum, a very small uh, by market cap standpoint, but one that raised uh, the price of a very common antibiotic that's been around for 60 years, uh, 400%. This was on Labor Day. This was on Labor Day, yes. It was actually right before Labor Day weekend. We saw a whole bunch of activity on both Thursday and Friday that week, uh, going into a long weekend, not surprising, holiday, maybe people taking their eye off the ball. Uh, We were not taking our eye off the ball.
0: Michael, what is spread pricing, and what does it have to do with CVS charging almost $200 for a bottle of pills when it told the pharmacy that it was worth less than six dollars, and what was the company doing with all the extra money? <laughs>
2: it's, it's a great question. Millions of people are trying to figure out. Um, you know the difference between the two hundred dollars and the six dollars. Uh, six dollars is what the pharmacy was reimbursed for a drug. Uh, the company that was paying the bill was charged two hundred. So the difference of that is one hundred ninety-four bucks. Uh, that goes into the pockets of someone Uh, in this case it was cvs and they uh you know they profited handsomely from that transaction but this is called spread pricing correct yeah and it's a it's a common industry term uh that goes back 20 20 years or so it was something that that had a lot of focus on it uh it went away uh to a large degree and now it is it is back in a big way
1: we've been talking with you over the number of months and years that we've had conversations about the desire to bring down drug pricing and the inability to do so and we talk about spread pricing we talk about how even though there does seem to be a push to lower prices it just isn't happening why are companies able to raise a drug price 400 percent over a long weekend and no one cares and no one pushes back. Where does this come from?
2: Yeah, so you know, people, uh, people do care and the problem has been pointed out for, for decades. Uh, the problem is there is an uninformed market. There's an inefficient market and the only way to change that is to do what we've done in every other area of our life and that is inform consumers of what things cost and what options they have uh, from a therapy standpoint. It's very simple. Uh, It's not, it is also very difficult.
0: Is there a quid pro quo when it comes to a pharmacy benefit management company carrying a specific drug from a specific manufacturer?
2: There can be. Depends on the PBM, Uh, depends on the drug manufacturer, but absolutely we've seen cases where there's a quid pro quo.
1: Can you argue that pharmaceutical companies need pricing to be where it's at for them to be able to innovate and for them to be able to uh, come up with the life saving drugs that we're seeing?
2: Well, you know, I'm the first to, uh, to endorse the amount of research to, to really bring breakthrough therapies to the market. And I think that people and companies that do that should be be rewarded handsomely uh, for it. And they are. Uh, I think, is there, is there fluff in all of the drugs that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years? Absolutely. So well, I think that there's a, a lot of extra profit put on, put on some medications that don't bring something uh, very very meaningful to the market. So I
1: think that what your uh, objective is to say that the free market principles that have guided prices for so many other markets kind of have not existed in the pharmaceutical industry because of the way that things have structured and the lack of transparency when it comes to what the actual pricing is and so what you're trying to do is to give more information is that enough given the fact that insurance companies uh, end up paying things and getting mm-hmm. rebates and the you know the whole sort of uh, muddied and complicated system and is there any chance of, of overhauling that
2: well it, it's a there are many things there are many components that make up make this this benefit so complicated um, so a couple of things that are very easy rebates go away um, and consumers have information about prices I mean those are just kind of That's not gonna solve every problem, but it's gonna get you 90% of the way there. Um, People don't want to be uh, making decisions that cost a lot of money intentionally, but they also don't wanna be told what to do. They want the chance to choose. Uh, If I buy a car, I I wanna choose which car I buy. It's very similar with drugs and it's much more personal because these are medications that we swallow and put into our body.
0: Do these kinds of spread pricing and rebates exist for generic drugs as well?
2: Yeah. And in the, case of, uh, in the case of the Bloomberg article yesterday, um, that was a generic drug. And that, that's a common fallacy, too, that all of you know, specialty drugs certainly get the focus, but the amount of profit on some of these generic drugs is astronomical when you look at it percentage-wise.
0: And this can occur for Medicaid as well as for Medicare patients. It doesn't matter.
2: Yes, all, all facets. There may be variations of how it's played, how the game's played, uh, but Medicare, Medicaid, commercial, uh, employer, it's, it's, it's all there.
0: Wow. All right. Well, thanks very much for being here. Michael Ray, founder, chief executive of Rx Savings Solutions based in Overland Park, Kansas. Much appreciated. Thanks for coming in. Get ready for some new colors, midnight blue, white, black, stone, and product red. Leather cases will be in saddle brown, taupe, black, and product red.
1: This is this is the shopping channel now.
0: Well, it, it clearly is because, of course, Apple will be releasing a list of new products. And here to tell us all about them is Mark Gurman, a technology reporter for Bloomberg, and he knows everything about Apple. So, uh, Mark, what is a, the... Not uh, <laughs> well, okay, not everything, mostly everything. Uh, what is the most important thing from this product release? Is it the watches? Is it the iPhone? Is it the nomenclature?
3: The most interesting thing, of course, will be the phones, three new phones. There'll be this new strategy where it's all about the iPhone 10. So last year, obviously, the iPhone X, $1,000, came in one screen size, a pretty standard um, array of of features and skews this time around they're going bigger and cheaper so there'll be an update to the iphone 10 from last year faster processor better camera will be called the 10s then they're going to go even higher end with the 10s max essentially a bigger faster version of the iphone 10 biggest screen they've ever put into a phone and it would be one of the biggest phone screens uh, on the market. And they're going yeah. cheaper with a phone that they're gonna call the XR, which is gonna look like the iPhone 10, be a little bit bigger, but cost a couple hundred dollars less.
1: So Mark, you know, we're talking a lot about Apple and we are sort of heralding its products with a lot of fanfare, with images, uh, both verbal and visual throughout the day on media across the board. How much does this matter from a business perspective, given the fact that Apple is now a trillion dollar company, a major presence in U.S. equity markets? Can you just sort of give us the perspective of the import of this product launch.
4: It's
3: extraordinarily significant. Apple gets almost 75% of its revenues from the products that are going to be introduced today. And the iPhone, even though it generates that much, plus the Apple Watches that will be introduced today, it generates even more long-term in terms of people downloading apps and different services and Apple Music and iCloud Storage to them. So this is as key as it gets for Apple and its long-term strategy and its continued sustainability.
0: Mark, there's also going to be new Apple Watches, Series 4, and they're going to be wider than current watches and come in a variety of colors. Tell us about the Apple Watch.
3: So the big news on the Apple Watch today is going to be the bigger screen, be able to fit more uh, watch faces, more content on the screen. It'll be a little bit easier to read if you're glancing on it uh, while it's on your wrist some new functionality on the heart rate sensor, some new fitness software to automatically begin workouts. So let's say you're on a run or you're on a treadmill or whatnot, the watch now will be able to automatically determine that's what you're doing and start recording without user intervention.
1: I have to say I do use that feature. I do have an iPhone and I check how many miles I've walked at the end of the day every day, even though I question the accuracy of it. I do it every single day and the number of floors that I go up. Pim, do you do that? No. no,
0: because I would need an Apple Watch in order to do that. But I'm under the mm-hmm. impression, Mark, that uh, well, and Lisa, the you can go on this. No, but the
1: phones, the phones also have that.
0: Yeah, well, you'd need to activate that feature as well, right? <laughs> I'm not activating anything that measures how far I walk. But indeed, that's connected actually to a GPS signal, isn't that right, Mark?
3: Um, right. So the Apple Watches will have GPS as they've had the last couple of years, and the GPS makes it more accurate. Obviously, the phone has, has GPS as well, and. You can set up how many floors you've walked or your distance walked using a special health sensor that is in the phone, combined with the GPS as
1: well. So Mark, we have heard from Apple that they're expecting to raise prices on certain products on the heels of the escalating tariff battle uh, with China, between the US and China. And I'm just wondering, do you think that they're going to talk about that at all, especially as they unveil the prices of some of these products? Right. I think that the
3: tariffs are still in the proposal stages. They haven't been implemented yet. And if we were to see any price increases due to that, uh, it's not something that we would see until probably a year from now. Uh, it's not something that would go into effect today or be talked about today.
0: Mark, as far as those tariffs are concerned, would they also include tariffs on chips that are manufactured in China?
4: You know, that's that's a
3: good question. Right now, the, the tariff listings that Apple's impacted by has to do with the Apple Watch itself, the AirPods, the Mac Mini, the, the desktop computer that hasn't been updated in four years, but they're planning on updating it in October, and a few other various accessories like leather cases and chargers. Uh, so nothing on the chip side for now.
1: So Mark Gurman, we're going to let you go because you have a, a crazy day ahead of you. This is like the Super Bowl of your beat, I imagine. So uh, I will <laughs> let you. I will let you get to uh, Mark Gurman. Thank you so much for joining us. Mark Gurman covers you. all things Apple here at Bloomberg, and he uh, also, in general, covers other tech too. But really, it's all Apple all the time.
0: Our next guest hunts for value. Marty Sass is the chairman and the chief executive officer of MD Sass Investor Services, helping to manage over $7 billion. Marty Sass, welcome to the program. How do you define
4: value right now? Um, hi, Tim. Um, the yeah. we're really looking at, uh, you know, there's, there's been a, a tremendous uh, divergence between growth stocks, you know, particularly the fangs, and stocks that are trading at deep discounts from the market, i.e. I- value stocks. Um, now, the ones that we're interested in, which I'm happy to discuss with you, Pim, uh, are companies that will show exceptional earnings growth. Uh, yet are trading at steep discounts from the P-E ratio of the S&P 500.
1: So let's just jump right in there. Which stocks are you talking about that you like?
4: Well, let me give you five names that I think are particularly compelling now. One is a a cruise line, Norwegian Cruise Lines, symbol NCLH, trades around $53 a share. Uh, 9.4 times our estimate of 19 earnings, uh, 2019 earnings, uh, uh, with rapid growth because of robust worldwide demand for cruising, uh, higher pricing, and gains in occupancy. Yeah. Uh, a second name would be in the home building area. Um, home builders uh, have been out of favor because of higher mortgage rates. But despite uh, the rise in rates, uh, Lenar, which is our pick there, tra- is a symbol LEN, trading around 51, uh, it's now... the. Number one home builder in the United States, having just acquired in February, CalAtlantic. They are outperforming consensus earnings and uh, order growth. Their orders organically are up 12 percent, and they're seeing great strength in the ability to raise prices because of short new housing supply due to a lack of available labor and land. And so they're able to pass through higher input costs with higher prices.
0: Marty, can we but, just use both of those as examples? Because I want to get your, your thinking a little bit behind the, the headline, which is how did you come to find Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings? Was there a screen that you ran or did you meet someone? Or how did you find that particular company? And then once you did, what kind of follow-up did you do in order to make the decision that, yes, this was a stock you wanted to buy?
4: Okay. Um, Tim, for years, we've been following the cruise line stocks. And, and we, we like the group because, and, and there's really three names there. There's Carnival, uh, which is number one, Royal, uh, uh, which is number two. Uh, and and uh, Norwegian, which is number three. Um, and the reason we like the group is that, uh, and so we like all the stocks, but but Norwegian's our favorite. Um, is that the penetration of cruising is very low around the world. Even here in the United States, where it's very popular, only 20% of Americans have ever been on a cruise. When you go to China. It's a fraction of that, and it's growing extremely ra- rapidly. And all around the world, cruising is an increasingly favored form of vacationing and, and travel. Uh, you know, it's relatively inexpensive, yeah. um, and, 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 and um, it's gotten increasingly attractive in terms of the new ships. And by the way, new, new, Norwegian has the, the newest uh, uh, ships. And the reason Norwegian out of the three is it's got the lowest multiple and the highest projected growth.
1: Marty, as you have a thesis like this that you see a fundamental opportunity in, sort of to go back to Pim's point about what is value, how much do you have to care about what's going on in the rest of the world, the sort of big macro drivers uh, that the stars of the 2008 crash have failed to understand and have gotten wrong again and again? I mean, how do you have to sort of keep an eye on the big picture while coming up with specific idiosyncr- idiosyncratic theses?
4: well well we do have to uh uh keep an eye on the big picture um you know these these are global for, uh, companies uh, you know they they cruise all around the world one of the advantages they have um uh, uh by the way as it just applies to the cruise line industry for, for a moment is that they can move the ships wherever they want so if it's weak in a particular market they just move the ships to a different location where it's stronger and the demand is stronger, so there's a lot of flexibility and, and very savvy management here. Uh, so, but, but nevertheless, you know we've got to be aware of what's going on in the world. I was with the CEO of a major company that does business in China uh, just yesterday over lunch, and got a pretty close picture of what's going on there. Uh, it's an important uh, potential market uh, for for the cruise lines and for other. Uh, industries, so yes, the macro is important, but also even uh, more important to us is what's going on in these individual companies so we we take both into account
0: Marty, when you hear investors speak about the age of the bull market,
4: what do you think um One thing that that I've always found to be true is, you know, (laughs) I've been in the business for a long time, many decades, (laughs) uh, having started in 1963 and seen a lot of markets. Uh, Markets don't die of old age. Uh, It it really, you know, we saw a a very long bull market. This one has just exceeded that uh, one, but from 2002 to 2007, uh, you know, we had a 114 month bull market um it was up a uh, percent during that period by the way yeah. this bull market has just surpassed that record so it's now the longest it's up 328 percent uh since the march 2009 low uh, but you know it's been um supported uh, largely by strong earnings um uh, some multiple expansion and some expected growth, but the bulk has been you know seventy. Over 70% of the gain uh, has been due to uh, strong earnings. Marty,
1: we just have about a minute left. No, no worries. We just have about a minute left, and I do want to get this question in. Uh, I was just looking at Norwegian uh, among the cruise liners, and the shares are a little bit down on the year, basically flat, even though the S&P 500 is up more than 9%. When do you decide it is time to sell? I'll give you 20 seconds.
4: Um, we, se- we, se- we, send- we set a price target based on what we think is a realistic valuation. Uh, so in the case of Norwegian, based on what we think is fair value, we think there's... 40% upside in the stock from its current level of 53 to our target of 75.
1: All right. So you still are hanging in there and see a lot yeah. more upside. Well, Marty you, says you, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, but you can come back uh, and explain more because it's really interesting. Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of MD Sass Investor Services uh, coming to us from New York. And definitely an interesting uh, kind of idea on a day like this as people reflect on what happened a decade ago. The macro trends don't seem to be driving the world at least today just as much. This is Bloomberg. There are a lot of headlines about Brexit. Pim, I don't know about you, but when I see them, sometimes I think, oh, another incremental move. Do we have to pay attention to this one? Um, Do you think that too sometimes? Come on, true confession.
0: I got to say, you know, one of the things that I find so amazing about it is the change in tone from when the United Kingdom joined the European Union and the tone that exists currently trying to exit the European yeah. Union. So the contrast to me is is always something that I'm thinking about when I see those headlines.
1: And the contrast between the pessimism that we have seen and perhaps a little bit of optimism that there will actually be a Brexit deal. Let's bring in Tim Ross. He actually knows what's going on uh, a little bit more directly. UK reporter covering government politics and of course Brexit for Bloomberg News uh, in London. Tim, thank you so much for being with us. So it seems like there is a move that is being made towards signing some sort of Brexit deal that is really sort of a crucial moment that isn't just incremental. Can you tell us more?
5: That's right. Well, if this happens and it's not been completely nailed down as an idea yet, what what would happen would be that the UK and the European Union would sit down, all the 27 leaders plus Theresa May from the UK would sit down in the middle of November in Brussels probably, and sign the deal. Uh, but before we get to that point, the, there has to be a deal, obviously, and there's still quite a lot that needs to be done there. The biggest issue that's outstanding is still how to avoid security and police checks and customs checks at the border between Ireland and the UK. Um, that has been deadlocked for months, and it's still deadlocked.
0: Tim Ross. What is the future of Theresa May the British prime minister?
5: Well that's a good question. If I had the answer to that I think I'd be a rich man by now but um, we've had we've had a lot of we've had a lot of um speculation certainly in the last 24 hours that her own conservative party members of parliament are plotting to get rid of her and replace her with somebody who will pursue a harder form of brexit a more decisive split. Between the UK and the EU. What she's proposing is actually to keep very close ties, certainly for trading goods with the European Union. But plenty of people in her party, like Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary, want a much cleaner break. And some of them last night spent a couple of hours discussing exactly how to go about replacing her and getting rid of her. Now, the next month is the Conservative Party's convention. They have an annual conference, um, and that is a moment of some danger for the prime minister where she will have to face her own team, her own side, and persuade them to keep her.
1: So I'm trying just to just understand the time frame here, because this potential breakthrough may happen in November. What happens if Britain is unable to come to some agreement with how Brexit will be enacted uh, within the next 12 months?
5: Well, it's got to happen before then, ideally. I mean, so Brexit is due to happen on the 29th of March. That doesn't leave very much time at all for things to go wrong in November. The reason for that is that once there is a deal that the two negotiating teams have signed, that deal then has to get through both the UK Parliament, we know how difficult that is, and also the European Parliament. And if those two parliaments don't agree that the terms of that divorce deal are acceptable, then the whole process gets held up again. And as I say, under European law, as things stand, the UK will automatically leave the European Union on March the 29th, even if there's no deal. So it's got to happen quite quickly.
0: The uh, the future of, of these Brexit negotiations depend not only on who's negotiating from the UK, but also what the negotiators from the European Union want. Is there any detail about any consensus on their part?
5: So we've been reporting in the last two or three weeks or so that the, the big issue, as I was saying earlier, that's still to be solved is this question of the Irish border. And it's incredibly sensitive because obviously with a history of conflict on the island of Ireland, uh, nobody wants to see a return to anything that could potentially split communities in the north and the south from each other any more than they already are. And, and certainly no one wants to return to any any tensions or violence there. So they, they are absolutely determined to sort that out. That's the European Union's priority and the UK recognises it has to solve that issue and find a solution to the border. Beyond that, there's the separate issue of what the future will look like, what kind of trading relationship after Brexit the UK will have with the European Union, that looks like it will be a much fuzzier, hazier, more sort of open to interpretation kind of statement when the deal comes. And then the details on that will have to be worked out over the next couple of years after Britain has left the EU.
0: I want to thank you very much for joining us. Tim Ross is our U.K. government reporter for Bloomberg. And, Lisa, just looking at the pound sterling right now trades at 130.32, a little stronger against the U.S. dollar. But if you compare it to what it was trading at back in April.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: down nearly 10%.
1: There was a story on the Bloomberg today talking about how New York has surpassed London as the world's financial headquarters in the wake of Brexit. But I have seen conflicting studies with respect to just how much has actually changed in the fortunes of London in particular, because that's the most global city uh, in the nation. But, you know, just how much the fortunes have changed in the heels of this. And of course, we do have that populist wave sweeping other areas. So a lot of eyes on how exactly this goes down.
0: Yes. And we'll be looking forward to that November summit if indeed it uh, really does take place.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.